0: thank you for that. God, I thank you for this body of believers here who um, have just been faithfully serving you. God, I thank you just for entrusting us with your word and for giving us your message today. And so I just pray, open our hearts that we may behold wondrous things out of your word. And it's in the name of Jesus that I pray this. Amen. I muted myself. That I unmuted it so in 2004 there was this movie that came out that I honestly didn't care at all about but it tugged at the heart of every teenage girl that I knew and it was called The Notebook anybody familiar with The Notebook Uh, I remember I did end up watching it um, and there's a story behind it we won't go into that but I don't remember anything about it other than Every teenage girl that I knew loved that movie. And it's based off of a book by Nicholas Sparks, and he's he's done multiple other movies and multiple, or multiple other books that they've turned into movies, but every single one of them is this romantic, tugging at the heartstrings, like just, I don't get it, but the teenage girls, they understood it. And whenever you go through the Old Testament, you get stories of like the judges. We covered that last week. And the judges reads like gladiator. I mean, if they would make a movie about the judges, it would have Mel Gibson, he would come in and he would just lead people to victory through war. And then it would be this like movie that I would pay to go watch. And then you get the story of Ruth, which I'm not gonna go watch, but tugs at the heart of, I'm not gonna say every, but a lot of, women because where judges is action and its violence and its conquering and its god calling men to come and op- and free his people which tugs at the hearts of men you have ruth which is a story of love and romance and and it tugs at the hearts of women and the reality is is that they occur along the same time frame That where Judges is this action-packed story in the middle of it, it's also not a good story because as we talked about last week, there's this repeated phrase in it over and over that says they did what was right in their own eyes and that is why they went back into oppression. And it's this dark, dark history in Israel's past. And then you get Ruth, which is this beautiful story of redemption. In this dark time. One scholar, he quoted this about Ruth. He said, Ruth has been called the beautiful pearl against a jet black background. The events of Ruth take place during the days of judges. Some of the darkest days in Israel's history. Yet Ruth is a beautiful story. And what we see also in Ruth is the faithfulness of God. Because through that dark history of the Israelite people, what you have in Ruth is the lineage of Jesus, the preservation of the line of the Messiah, the faithfulness of God's message to his people. And so we're going to see that in the book of Ruth. So fun little trivia, maybe fun, I don't know, about Ruth is if you are an Orthodox Jew, you still read this account every feast of Pentecost. Pentecost being when the new church received the Spirit of God in Acts chapter 2, but the Jews still celebrate that 50 days after the Passover, and they read the passage of Ruth. The book of Ruth, it's named after its central person. Her name is Ruth. She is a Moabite Woman and the Moabites were descendants of Lot. So you go back to Genesis chapter 12, and God calls Abraham to leave his father's country and to go into a land that God is going to promise him. And Abraham takes his nephew Lot with him. And then you get the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where Lot ends up camping close to Sodom and Gomorrah, and then we find out Lot is in Sodom and Gomorrah, and God is gonna rain down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham kind of negotiates with God, and it's like, if we can find 50 faithful people, will you spare it? And he ends up working his way down to, can you find 10? And he couldn't find 10. So God sends messengers to Lot and he says, flee from Sodom and Gomorrah because there is going to be fire literally rain down from heaven. And as you're fleeing, do not turn around because if you turn around, you will die. And as they're running away, Lot's wife turns around and it says she turns into a pillar of salt. But Lot and his two daughters, they flee, and they flee into the hills, and the two daughters are sitting there, and they're like, you know what? We have no inheritance. We have no husbands. Nobody's going to take care of us, and we need a child. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to get dad drunk, and then we're going to have a child through our father. And so Lot became Moab's granddad and dad at the same time. If you ever watched Jerry Springer when it was back on, this is a Jerry Springer story. I mean, like the crowd would be like, Jerry, Jerry, like it's it's not a good story there. But you get Lot having one of these kids with his daughter, and they he names it Moab, or she names this names this child Moab. And through that, we get the Moabites, who Ruth is a descendant And so you have Ruth. The author, we don't really know who the author is, it's anonymous. But in the genealogy, we have David in this story at the end of the book in Ruth chapter 4. So we know that it is written sometime after David becomes a king. The date of these events, again, not known, but Judges chapter 1 verse 1 says... In, not Judges, I'm sorry, Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1 says, in the days when the Judges ruled. So we know the time frame. We also know that Ruth was the mother of Obed, Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. We know when David was born, he was born in about 1040 B.C., so going back four generations from there, we can date it to roughly between 1150 and 1100 B.C., which puts this about the time that Samson or Gideon was a judge. So kind of some timeline. Again, I love this stuff. I geek out on like the history and the context. So if you're type A like me, this might appeal to you. If you're not, hold on and we'll get to the meat of the message. The audience. Again, it was written during David's time. So it's written to the Israelites during the reign of David. One of the reasons it might've been written is to prove David's, uh, David's, Oh my goodness, I can't think of the word. Like why David should deserve the throne. And so they're showing that David deserves the throne. It also is to show the divine sovereignty of God's grace, which brought David to the throne. And then again, if you read Matthew chapter one, there are four Gentile women in the genealogy of Jesus. You have Rahab, you have two other women that don't come to mind, and then you have Ruth. And so she is in the genealogy of the Messiah. And again, Ruth is a narrative providing a gratifying reminder that even in the darkest times, God is faithful and God is working in the hearts of his faithful remnant. The purpose of why it is written is to show how a Gentile woman became the ancestor of Christ and fulfilled the lineage of David being the father of Christ, being the father as in an ancestor of Christ. You have three main people in the story. You have Ruth, the central heroine, if you want to call her that. You have her mother-in-law, Naomi. And then you have her soon-to-be husband, kinsman, redeemer. You have Boaz, the main events. Again, we see the lineage of King David and ultimately the lineage of Jesus. So the story of it goes, Ruth is living in Moab with her family, with Naomi, who comes over with her husband and her two sons. They marry, uh, oh my goodness, too many names. They marry Ruth and all of the men end up dying. And so Naomi realizes she has nothing in Moab. So she goes back to Bethlehem with Ruth. And this is where you get the beautiful line in Ruth, where Ruth is saying, I'm going to come with you. And Naomi is like, there's nothing for you there. And Ruth says, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And wherever you go, I will follow. Then you get Ruth meeting Boaz while she is in the field gleaning Some of the crop, and Boaz shows Ruth kindness by not only allowing her to glean, he says, stay with my younger women so that you can be protected. And then also I'm going to tell some of the men to leave some of the crop for you. He shows kindness to her. Then you get this event where Ruth comes and lays at the feet of Boaz on the threshing floor, asking for Boaz to redeem her. Because Naomi finds out who Boaz is, and she says, he is one of our redeemers. There's one closer than him, but he is in the next in line. And so if he can show you kindness, he can redeem you, and he is a good man. And so she goes and lays at his feet, asking for him to redeem her. So Boaz does that. He goes to the next in line, and he says, would you take Ruth, or not even Ruth, he says, would you take this land that belonged to our relative, and the Redeemer is like, yeah, I'll take it. That sounds good. And then he says, actually, it comes with Ruth also. He's playing coy with him. He's like, here's the good thing. And then kind of you have to take this wife with you. And so the Redeemer is like, whoa, hold on. That, that could be bad for my ancestry. I'm not going to do it. I'll let you go ahead. You redeem her. And so he does that. And then the beautiful moment, they both get married They have a child named Obed, and Obed gives or father's Jesse, and Jesse father's David. It takes place in two locations. You have the plains of Moab in Ruth chapter 1, and then the rest of it happens around Bethlehem in chapter 2 through 4. There are really two main themes that we see in the book of Ruth. The first one is redemption where Boaz is the kinsman redeemer and he redeems Ruth. He buys her back and gives her a location. And then the second one, we kind of hinted at it, is kindness. You see the kindness of Ruth towards Naomi saying, wherever you go, I'm going to go with you. You have the kindness of Boaz towards Ruth and saying, you can have more of it. I'm going to leave some of the crop for you. You have the kindness of God towards Naomi, towards Ruth, and towards his people in keeping his covenantal promises. And then a real quick outline of the book is Ruth's love is demonstrated. We see that towards Naomi. And then you have Ruth's love is rewarded in that Boaz sees who Ruth is. He sees how she has been kind to her mother-in-law, and then he redeems her and then there is one typology that we have one instance that we see christ played out in this and that is in boaz being the kinsman redeemer this word is goel in hebrew and it is used 13 times in this very short book you can read from beginning to end in about 10 minutes this story And so this idea of kinsman redeemer, that's kind of where we're going to wrap up because we see Christ played out in the kinsman redeemer. As Boaz was for Ruth, Jesus is for us. So a kinsman redeemer is not something that we're familiar with in whatever century we're in, like 21st, 22nd century, wherever we're at now, especially in America. And it almost is really weird to us. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 25, God establishes the role of the kinsman redeemer for the Israelite people. And he says, if brothers dwell together in the same region and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the deceased brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. So the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her, Then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house and the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. A real big dig right there. Ooh, you had your sandal pulled off. That's an insult. At that time, apparently it definitely is. But what we see here is the importance that God is placing on family to take care of their family. That if a husband dies, it is the brother of the husband who is supposed to come in and fulfill the husband role. Now we don't do that today, but in the new covenant, Paul still tells us that as a family, we are to care for our family. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, he says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than a brother. God is saying that families are to care for one another. And in Israel, when your your lineage and your ancestry is a big thing, to be left with no son, it was a big deal. And so God is Saying that you are to, if you are left with no son, then a brother is to come and give you a son. And through that, remember it said, the firstborn takes on the name of the deceased husband. Without a redeemer, that woman is helpless. Because if she had no son, she had no land. She had no possession. She had really no future. She was not going to be cared for. And so God saw the importance right there even to say that the Old Testament is like oppressive towards women. We see God had it established for women to be cared for through his word even. And so God is establishing it to care for his people. And without a redeemer, she was hopeless. Do you see the correlation? how we are without a redeemer, without somebody to buy us back, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter two, that we were dead, we were slaves, we were following the course of this world, that without somebody to buy us back, we too are hopeless. We too are without an inheritance. Actually, we have a future, but it's an eternal death in hell. Not an eternal ceasing to existence, an eternal dying without being able to die. An eternal flame, an eternal hell. You see, Judges shows us the depravity of Israel. It shows us everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes. And then in Ruth, we see the beauty of God stepping in and showing us there is a Redeemer who comes in and buys us back from darkness, buys us back from hopelessness. You see, there there were really kind of four stipulations in order to be able to be the redeemer. So first off, I couldn't just redeem anybody. We were told that a redeemer must be a relative. They must be blood. The same thing for us. Not only are we in a physical decay, but we as people are spiritually decaying. We are in a spiritual slavery. And in order for us to be set free from that, blood had to be shed. But Hebrews tells us the blood of bulls and goats can never take away your sins. It takes something more than bulls and goats. And so Jesus steps in. But he couldn't come in just divine power he had to come and take on flesh john chapter 1 verse 14 tells us that he came the word became flesh and dwelt among us jesus came and put on flesh hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says therefore since the children share in flesh and blood he being jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Hebrews chapter 9 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So we needed a perfect Sacrifice. We needed a perfect blood to be given, but it couldn't be bulls and goats. It had to be flesh. And Jesus came and took on flesh. So not only must it be blood and flesh, also you have to be able to pay the price, right? I mean, I can't go and buy a car that's worth, like no Lamborghini will I be able to buy. Because I cannot pay that price. They'll be like, you know what? Let's look at your your credit line. And they're going to be like, nope, you don't even make close enough to afford this. So we're not going to let you buy this. To be able to redeem somebody, you have to be able to pay the price. And Peter tells us that Jesus is able to. First off, Hebrews 10 tells us it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats. They can't pay that price. They cannot take away our sin. But Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Really, Jesus is the only one that could pay that price. You could never pay the price. In Matthew, we see the parable of the unforgiving master where this master uh, calls in his servant and he says, you owe me like, like I don't remember what it is, but 10,000 10, talents, we'll say that. Like 3,000 lifetimes of work. And the guy says, oh, I'm not able to pay that. Let me work it off. I'll do anything. Just don't send us to prison. And the master says, your slate's wiped clean. I'll forgive you. Because only he could forgive him. Only Jesus can forgive us. Only Jesus can pay the price. You never can. I mean, think if you racked up a bill. of, uh, Say it's like the, the U.S.'s debt right now. Like we're talking like $35 trillion. And you worked, racked up that bill. And you said to the person that owns the bill over you, you said, you know what? I'll work it off for you. They're gonna laugh in your face. They're gonna be like, even if I paid you a billion dollars a day, you're still not paying this debt off. You will never pay your debt off. You needed somebody to step in who was able to make the payment and Jesus steps in, not with perishable things, but with his precious blood. Also, this one's kind of a given. They have to be willing to redeem. The person that comes in and buys you back, they have to be willing to do it. It's not an obligatory thing, even though, like it told us in Deuteronomy, if they say no, they lose their sandal and they get spit in the face. That's a bad thing, but they're still not forced to to do it. Jesus was not coerced into giving his life. Jesus did not have his arm twisted. We are not able to stand down here. Actually, we'll be kneeling face down before Jesus, but he's not like, oh my goodness, I have no other option. I I guess that you got me. Like checkmate, nothing else I can do. You win, I'll die for you. It's because Jesus willingly gave his life. He went to the cross because he desired to. Ruth 4, 6 shows us that the Redeemer did not want to. He said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. So take my right of redemption upon yourself, for I cannot. John 10 tells us that Jesus says, there is nobody that takes my life. He says, I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. And I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father, I give my life as a sacrifice. Now Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, is praying, God, if there be any other way, remove this cup from me. And he always came back to, not my will, but your will. This is the only way, but I give my life as the sacrifice. Because it tells us, even as he's hanging on the cross, everybody's like, let him send down angels. They're insulting him. They're like, he he claims to be the son of God. Let him send angels down and they can free him. But Jesus saw this was the only way to go through the darkest, most excruciating pain so that we could be set free. And then the last thing that is a requirement, in order to set somebody free, you have to be free yourself you have to be able to be free 2 Corinthians tells us that for our sake he made him who knew no sin so that in him to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of god jesus wasn't a slave he was not under the sin nature. That's the duality of Jesus being fully man, but fully God, that he came in with no sin nature, even though he was tempted just like us in every single way, yet without fault. He lived the perfect life so that he could be the perfect sacrifice. And he, was set, he is free and he sets us free. And so what we see in Ruth chapter 4, is we see the redemption of Ruth. And what you see in that is you see this woman who was a widow without possession, without future and without hope. And when she was redeemed by Boaz, she is fully brought into his home. She now receives an inheritance. She now receives a possession. She now receives a hope and she now receives a future. And we see that she is listed in the genealogy of the Messiah. She is given a beautiful future. In order for that redemption to take place, though, a legal transaction had to be made. And I'll tell you, it's a weird one. Because just as they spit in the face and removed the sandal, in order for the transaction for Boaz to redeem Ruth, he took the sandal from the kinsman redeemer, the first in line, and that completed the transaction, which they say that the way that is, is that like possession is nine-tenths of the law. And so whenever you would redeem property, you would be standing on the property and to take your sandal off is saying, I no longer possess this property and I'm giving it to you because now you possess property. The property. That's how it would have happened. The, the next in line kinsman would have taken his sandal off, given it to Boaz, and that would have completed the legal transaction. And it would have been done in the presence of the elders of the city. Same thing for us. In order for us to be redeemed from hell, redeemed from our slavery to sin and our slavery to ourself, a legal transaction has to to happen and we saw it in 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 where he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become his righteousness he took on our sin and he gave us his righteousness and it is all done through his blood that's the legal transaction that was made Colossians chapter 2 verse 13 says you You were dead in your trespasses. You were dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made you alive together with Christ. You've been forgiven all your trespasses. Here's here's the legal transaction. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, nailing it to the cross. That's where the transaction was made. That when Jesus on that cross says it is finished, what he is talking about is the transaction of us being bought back from death to life. That he shed his blood, that we're told in 1 Peter that we have been redeemed not through perishable things like gold and silver, but through the imperishable blood of Christ, that he bought us back with his blood. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says, Do you not know that you are not your own? You were bought with a price that God bought us back from that with the blood of His Son. So we were bought back. There was a transaction, and that transaction was made not in front of the elders of the city, but in front of the God Almighty. It proved the transaction is good because we see the transaction being made, the check being written on the cross, the blood of Christ. And we see proof that the check has cleared through the grave because it's empty. That shows us that the price that was paid, I accept it and I receive that payment so that now it is completed, it is finished, and you are now in right relationship with God the Father, through the blood of Jesus. You see, just as Ruth went from widow to receiving an inheritance and a future, because of what Jesus did, we go from dead, we go from slaves, it's all different analogies of the same thing. We go from hopelessness to having a hope. We go from no future to receiving an eternal kingdom that can never be taken away from us. We go from having no inheritance to being called sons and daughters of God. We have a future because of what Jesus did for us. He fulfills the role of a redeemer in our lives, saving us. And Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 shows us what that transaction looks like. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. So what I want for you to do right now is I want you to know your status with God. Regardless of what happened this week regardless of maybe what you did this morning or regardless of what you've done in your past, and you're like, no way can I get past that ever. Like that darkest moment, because as it said in Colossians 1, he's delivered us from the dark domain. That moment in our history, That it's like, oh, like it it tells us, and this has always been my fear. It says that God is going to bring every hidden thing to light. And my mind automatically goes to, we're all going to be sitting in the sanctuary of heaven like this. And all of a sudden you're going to see on the projector, Andy Peterman's life. And it's going to be every thought, every action, everything that I ever did. And I pray to God, those never come out. And yet it says he has delivered us. From the domain of darkness into his marvelous kingdom. And that those things have been covered by the blood of Jesus. So that when you think of that thing that, say it would just say we could like, you know, it's always like, would you ever want your thoughts to be projected? No way. Never in my lifetime but say they could on the screen right now. And that one thought that pops in your head that you're like, oh, no, 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 not not that one. I don't want that. This is what God says about you now. In Ephesians chapter one, verse seven, he says, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. Through his blood, we have been redeemed from that past. Now look at what it says in verse 11. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise in his glory. In him, now he's talking to us. He was talking to the Jews in Paul's time first. Now he's talking to us. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Before that, in verse 4 through verse 6, it says that we are adopted, we are sons, we are loved, that God works through us. It goes on to say that we are his workmanship, so that you're not haunted by your past. You don't come to the throne of God saying, God, I messed up this week, and I don't know if you're going to welcome me in. But instead, it tells us with confidence we get to approach the throne room of grace, that we get to come before God, and we get to say, God, I messed up, and I need you, and I come running to you as a child runs to his father not as a guilty goes to a judge where it's like oh my goodness judge um, I messed up please don't throw the book at me I'm guilty and I'm gonna plead guilty so that maybe I can get a lesser sentence but um, I'm really freaking out right now judge but instead we are sons of God where we get to come to our father and we get to say dad I've messed up and I need your help to get out of this. Help me, but before, will you just hold me? I just need to be in your presence. We're gonna work through this, but God, I I just need to be before you. Isaiah, yesterday we were uh, at the splash pad. He didn't even do anything wrong. Kid's still perfect. But we were at the splash pad and he's now where he can walk with just one hand. And so I'm holding him uh, with just my finger and we're both wet and he slips and he face plants. And he's got a a strawberry on his face today. Tough kid, only cried for five, like maybe a minute. I cried for five minutes. But you know, um, he just wanted to be held. There was a pain that happened and he just wanted to be held. Now he loves his mom more than me. So he ended up going to her. The analogy breaks down there. That's what God wants for us to be like. There's a pain in our life. It might be self-inflicted, but God redeemed us so that we can come to him and just be like, God, it hurts. I just wanna be held right now. Hold me in your presence, and he does. And then as a loving father, we'll sit you down and be like, okay, you know what? This is what we're gonna do from here so that this doesn't happen again. God will do that. He'll walk with us because it does say that he'll discipline us but as a father disciplines his son for our betterment. And it's all because of what Jesus did that we can run to the father with our arms open wide. And he receives us because Jesus redeemed us from the pits of hell. And now we have a new inheritance. We have a new future. We have a new hope and we have a new identity. We're no longer slaves. We are children of God when we place our faith in the blood and the work of Jesus. Notice Paul said that. That when you heard the gospel of truth and believed in it, that you place your faith in, this is the only way. It's not through I'm coming to God and it's like, all right, the the prodigal son coming to the father and says, all right, father, I have sinned against you. Let me just be a servant and I'll work my debt off. Kind of like the unmerciful uh, master again who, he says, I'll I'll work the debt off. Jesus says that it is by grace that you have been saved, not a result of works. You're never going to be able to work it off. It is the free gift of God received through Christ, believing in him. Paul says, if you believe in God, if you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. That is no work I can do, it's only the work of Jesus. Ruth could not redeem herself, you cannot redeem yourself, there's only one who can. And it's Jesus Christ. And he has already paid for you to enter into freedom. Now we're called to receive his gift and walk in freedom ourselves. Father God, thank you for what you have done. That even even when we fall short again in this life, God, we are able to come to you. And God, we are able to say that we messed up. And God, we are able to know that there might be consequences, but that we are forgiven. That as you promise us in Romans, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God, I pray that we live in that freedom. And I also just pray that if there are there still those who are walking in slavery, God, just help them see that you've paid the price so that they can have a life live for you, have a life with identity and hope and purpose in a future, and that it's all through surrendering over to you everything, and in doing so, we gain eternity. God, I pray that you heart work in the hearts of your people this morning, and it's in the name of Jesus, amen.